Well, good morning. I am excited to be able to be here with you this morning. Um, Dr. Holmes asked me a few months ago to come and be with you, and so I uh, decided that what I would do is to do a an overview of the book of Exodus with you. I am beginning uh, a study of this in my own church. Let's turn to the book of Exodus, if you would, and I... Uh, want to help you get a good understanding of even this morning of how we rightly go about preaching a book like Exodus and particularly as we think about Old Testament narrative and how we how we ought to approach this as men who handle the word of God. Um, I have uh, never preached through the book of Exodus until this uh, past few months began studying to preach through it and I'm sure that most of us are immediately we are familiar with the riveting stories of Exodus. I mean, if we grew up in church, we grew up on these stories. Almost every scene is a masterpiece of storytelling. You have baby Moses in the basket on the Nile, the burning bush, uh, the river of blood and the other plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, these things, many of these things we just read about in the book of Hebrews, manna in the wilderness, water from the rock, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And as we think about the Jewish history, this story defines their very existence. God redeems them out of slavery. He forms them into his people who are to make his name known in the world. And the Exodus is a story of an epic journey from slavery to salvation. So what I want to do this morning is something a little bit different in how to look through this uh, a book like Exodus. Um, and I want to help you think through, if this is ancient history, uh, how do I take ancient history like this and preach it and teach it that it is practical literally thousands of years later? What is the best way to study Exodus? I love what um, Riken, Dr. Riken does as he kind of breaks it down into several categories. And I'm going to take those same categories that he uses of how we rightly study a biblical book, particularly an Old Testament book. Uh, this would be true of any book when we talk about this first point, but I'm going to give some specific things that would be true of an Old Testament book. The first thing we do when we come to the Word of God and as we come to a book like Exodus is we want our study to be expositional. Uh, we, we need to study it with an understanding to, and our intent to understand the plain meaning of the text. Because it's tempting to reduce Exodus to the familiar stories. And what we need to do is to study it in the way that it's been given. Which means we study it as a complete story and how it was originally understood by those who first received it. I think that few passages of scripture suffer more abuse than Old Testament narrative. For example, rather than studying the intention of the author in giving the story of David and Goliath, how many of us have heard sermons where the preacher will give a message on how for you are to face the giants in your life? Even though that story was never intended to be taken that way, it would not have been understood by the original readers. It certainly was not written that way by the uh, the author or the, and, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the, And the stories of Exodus are no different. Crossing the Red Sea wasn't given so you and I might ask God to help us part the waters of difficulty in our life. That's not why it was given. In fact, we, we take the, the real message when we do that that is a powerful, everlasting, eternal message and we reduce it down to something that is barely even visible as being Christian. 
God's word is eternal and whatever God was teaching the people then in its original written form is what he is teaching his people today. Because the preacher is not to impose a meaning upon the text, he is to expose the real meaning of the text. And that's how we need to approach the study of, and the preaching of God's word. So whatever it meant to the original readers is the same thing it means for us. Now, if that's true, then the study of an Old Testament narrative must not only be expositional, but it also must be studied in its historical context text. So as you study the book of Exodus, you need to, it needs to be expositional. It needs to be historical. We should know then that Exodus is Moses' sequel to the story of Genesis. Now, if you look in verse 1 of Exodus 1, you'll see there that there is something not there. Let me show you what's not there. It's not in our English, or at least in most English texts, it doesn't reflect that. But the Hebrew begins with and. It's an odd way to begin. This is not how we would begin things in proper English. But the text, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. In other words, there is a flow and a continuation from the story of Genesis. We need to understand the book of Genesis in the historical context as we enter the book of Exodus if we're going to be able to rightly understand it. Moses begins Exodus where Genesis left off. He begins with Israel and Egypt. So let's flip back to Genesis chapter 50. Flip back to Genesis chapter 50. And I want you to look at verses 1 to 26, the entire chapter of Genesis 50. In verses 1 to 6, in those verses, Moses emphasizes the death of Jacob. And in doing that, he's emphasizing that God's servants come and go. God's servants, all through the book of Genesis, they live and they die. But it is God's promise that endures. In verse 5 of chapter 50, there in Genesis, Joseph requests to bury his father in Canaan. And that's an act of continued faith in the promise of God that had been originally given to Abraham. The promise that God would make him, would make Abraham and his descendants into a great nation and to give them the land of Canaan. But all that they had, now think about this, this promise made back in, in Genesis chapter 12 when the journey begins with Abraham. When we come to the end of Genesis, all they have at the end of Genesis is the hope symbolized by Jacob's grave being in Canaan and not in Egypt. They have the very thing we read in Hebrews 11 just a moment ago, that they were believing obviously in something by faith that they had not even yet seen. Look in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 50. In verses 14 to 21, as he closes out Genesis, Moses emphasizes that God is sovereign over all that is taking place. In Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would go into slavery for 400 years. So when we open up Exodus and we find the sons in slavery in Exodus chapter 1, we know God was ultimately directing these historical events. As we close out the book of Genesis, we're reminded that God is sovereign. And in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph, Joseph tells his brothers, who, remember, sold him into slavery to Egypt, that God had a good purpose in the evil that was happening in this world. That God had been sovereign over the darkest period of Joseph's life. That Joseph interpreted his personal experience 
through the lens of a sovereign God. So he says in verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So they are today, he says in verse 20. He's saying that, listen, in the historical event of this world where his brothers sold him into slavery, yes, his brothers had a meaning in it and their meaning was purely evil. But God, same word, had a meaning in that and his meaning was for the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises. That's true of us too. God was sovereign. He had a good purpose in the individual slavery of Joseph. So we can be sure... That he has a good purpose for Abraham's descendants who will find themselves in slavery. When the nation of Israel finds itself in the place that Joseph was in, they should remember what God communicated, or what God through his word communicated in the words of Joseph, that their slavery is not a mistake. It was the very plan of the sovereign God, as would be their deliverance. He had said in Genesis 15 that it was coming. He now reminds them in Genesis 50 that this is all the work of God. So we have this in Genesis 50 as it closed out, but there's more. This truth that I just said about God's plan of deliverance is seen in verses 22 to 26 of Genesis 50. Look at those verses. Before his death, Joseph gives a final reminder of the covenant promise of God to Abraham. And his testimony points to that promise that God will bring them out of Egypt. A promise that's going to be needed for Israel as the days were going to be dark. He tells them there, look, he says in verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The truths of Genesis had enormous significance for slaves in the land of Egypt. In fact, if we don't understand the book of Genesis, we're going to not understand the depth and the power of what's taking place in the book of Exodus. Where did Genesis begin? It began with Adam and Eve dwelling in God's presence in the garden. That's where they are. They're in God. It's a, they, they are, God is coming down and fellowshipping with them. They experience the presence of God walking with them. But when Adam and Eve plunged the human race into slavery, or I should say, well, it is slavery, slavery to sin, but plunged the race into sin, they were cut off from the presence of God. Now God hinted in Genesis 3.15, That redemption would come through the woman's seed. That God was going to restore what has been lost. But in chapters 4 to 11 of Genesis, what do we see? We see a a continued decline of the human race into sin and darkness. We see a reboot, if you will, of a new creation and uh, when Noah comes out of the ark. But we find those who come out of the ark are as, as deeply infected with the wickedness of sin as everyone else was. And the spiral begins to go down again till we come to the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham out of this world and tells him that he will make him into a great nation, inherit the promised land, and that through his offspring all the nations will be blessed. Still yet, as we go through Genesis, we find that this family that God is creating and calling out, they are not a a, a people who are anything to be be seen as models of what, yes, I know why God chose this family, because they're righteous, they're holy. No, we see the sin continue, even within these people, and we see that there's something more that is needed for God to do. And as we begin Genesis, the beginning is light and life, 
And when we end Genesis in chapter 50, it ends with death and darkness. Traveling from Eden, every man, including Jacob, ended up in the same destination, a coffin, without having yet seen the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. But along the way, there was hope. Hope in the promise that God had given to Abraham. So as we begin Exodus, if you turn back there, we are reminded, look in verse 6 of chapter 1. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, were reminded that even in the face of death, even in the face of the death of God's servant Joseph, God's promise endures. And we must believe that God will raise up another servant as he brings about his promises for his people. We are seeing as these verses open of Exodus that God is in control even of this moment in history as he is every other moment of history. And he will bring about his promise that was made to Abraham and his descendants. And right here embedded in the first seven verses we see an important part of God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled even while they dwelled in a foreign land. Let's read these seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. Now stop for just a moment. Moses tells us the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Seventy. Seventy persons. Now that is far, far from being a great nation that God had promised to Abraham. in Genesis well, we've not progressed very far at all. When we get to the end of Genesis, 70 go down. And now, not only are there only 70, but they find themselves to be sojourners in Egypt. They're not even in the land that God had promised to them. And Joseph is what? Dead. Joseph is dead. There are 70 people that have gone down and they're in a foreign land. It's not an encouraging picture as the story continues. And verse 8 is even more ominous because if you look in verse 8, you find that Joseph is a distant memory. Now they have a Pharaoh who is over them who does not remember or know, or and which probably means he, didn't, he could care less about Joseph and any relationship that the people of Israelite had had before with Egypt. There is no, there's a new uh, king in, on the block and he in no way cares about Joseph or the people. But look at verse Seven. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you see this? God's promise embedded right here in verse 7 in the midst of all of this bad Even though we don't see the name of God, we certainly see God at work fulfilling His promises for His people. Seventy will go in, but thousands upon thousands will go out. In fact, Exodus 1.1. Exodus 1.1 is the last time in Moses' five books 
that the phrase sons of Israel will mean Jacob's immediate family. From now on, that title will refer to the people of God as a whole, the nation God promised and the nation that God was creating for himself. The only thing that explains verse 7 is that God is working for his people to fulfill his promises. But we still have a problem as we open Exodus. How is God going to make this people into a great nation and give them the land he promised Abraham if they're nothing but slaves? When Genesis ends, death still is looming. Mankind is still not able to experience the presence of God. But at least at the end of Genesis, they're free. Now we open the book of Exodus, we find very quickly in chapter 1 that they're slaves. How will God ever accomplish His purposes for His people? Well, that is the historical setting for the book of Exodus. What is God doing in a world, accomplishing His promises to His people, where they find themselves enslaved in another land? Genesis is the historical account of God's creation of the world, mankind's fall into sin and separation from God. And the hope is that God will fulfill His promise that He first makes to Eve in Genesis 3.15 and then further specifies to Abraham and his descendants. Exodus is the story of God's creation of that people for Himself. Their deliverance from slavery and their journey back to His presence. Now that's important to understand what is happening in the progress of the story of Exodus. It will take a work of redemption for God to be able to do what He plans to do, and that's where the story begins. But God means for us to have more than just historical. We must study the book of Exodus in an expositional manner. We must understand it in a historical way of how it fits in with the flow of the beginning of Genesis, how Genesis ends and and where Exodus is going. But we also must... If we're going to interpret the book of Exodus right, it must not only be an expositional study, a historical study, but it must be a theological one. God is teaching a deeper spiritual truth to both the people of Israel and even to us today as to why God sovereignly orchestrated all of these events to accomplish His good purposes. Every passage has a timeless theological point that applies not only to the original readers, but to every Christian who ever walks the face of this earth. So first I want you to see a couple of things as we think think theologically through the book of Exodus. First, our study of the biblical history of Exodus, the real hero of the story is God. And the real focus is His glory. Now hear this. I would probably say all, but since it's not always good to always say all. I'll say most. Most of the bad interpretations of Scripture that you hear, particularly uh, narrative, and most of the bad theology that you get out out, out of preaching and teaching and studying the Word of God, particularly narrative, 
is that people make man the center of the storyline rather than God the center of the storyline. If you make God the center of the storyline and say, what is God doing and what is God teaching, it will transform your preaching and your teaching of the Word of God. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people and takes pity on their suffering and raises up one to deliver them. God is the one who sends the plagues on Egypt, who divides the sea and who drowns Pharaoh's army. God provides manna from heaven. God gives the law and fulfills and fills the tabernacle of his glory. From the beginning to end, Exodus is a God-centered book and what he's accomplishing for his people. In fact, chapters 1 to 6... If you read chapters 1 to 6 of Exodus, they speak of the trial and the bondage of Israel and Egypt. But here's what's stunning. Moses says very little, he gives very little description about the oppression that Israel underwent in Egypt. Now isn't it interesting that the section where he would reveal the bondage of Israel, that he would have very few words to say about describing what it was like. I find that stunning because they were in slavery for 430 years. Now, our country is 240 years old, a little over 240 years old. They were in slavery for almost twice as long as our country has been in existence. Had you been in oppression for 430 years, you likely would have spilled a lot of ink about how what your suffering looked like. But Moses focuses rather than... All six chapters on how they were suffering, although he certainly helps us understand that to a degree, Moses focuses rather on what God did to bring the children of Israel out of that oppression. He doesn't highlight their suffering, he highlights God's glory. And in chapter 14 and verse 4, God says, I'm going to do this to Pharaoh because I'm going to get glory. He says in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 14 that all of that he's going to do is that he might get glory. God didn't want the focus of Exodus to be on the pain of the people primarily. He wanted it to be on the glory of himself in bringing those people out. Now let me give you the big picture of Exodus. And let me give you what I believe the theme is. If we take chapters 1 to 18 of the book of Exodus... We find in chapters 1 to 18 the story of God redeeming his people out of slavery. Then chapters 19 to 24, they focus on Israel as God's people as he gives them his word by which they're to live. He brings them out of slavery. He redeems them. Then as he takes them through the wilderness, he gives them his word. He gives them his law. And he shows them this is how you live as my people. Chapters 25 to 40 focus on how they're to worship God as his glory comes to dwell with them. In fact, they're waiting all through, we're waiting all through the book of Exodus for the presence of God to come to be with his people. Now, we have not seen that since Genesis chapter 3. Since Genesis chapter 3, we have not seen the presence of God dwell with His people. We're waiting for that through the book of Exodus. So in chapters 1 to 18, redemption. Chapters 25, to uh, the redemption of God's people. Chapters 19 to 24, how God's people are to live. Chapters 25 to 40, how God's people live in the presence and the are to live in the presence and of the glory of God and glorify God. So if I were to give a theme to the book of Exodus, it would be this. Redeemed to live for His glory. 
That is the message of the book of Exodus. And that is a timeless truth for every single believer. So Moses tells the story of the Israelites' divine redemption from slavery in order to reveal for all believers at all times what it means to be redeemed by God, what it means to live for God, and how we worship and glorify God as we experience His presence. But even then... Our theological point will fall flat and it will not be fully orbed as a picture as it's supposed to be if we don't point to Christ. Because all these truths of the Old Testament point to and find their complete fulfillment in Him. The Exodus finds its ultimate meaning and its final interpretation in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very same way in Luke 24 when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he, he showed them this according to the text in Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Not only is God the central character of every single story of the Old Testament, Christ is the central and ultimate fulfillment of every promise that God makes. And you'll see throughout the story of Exodus, though, this. That as we walk through the book, there is a longing for something more. Although God redeems Israel from her physical slavery, and although He's leading her to the promised land that He Himself promised, these people, rather than rejoicing in the God who delivered them, The people grumble and they complain against God. And they also complain against God's chosen servant Moses. We see it over and over again. They complain, God provides, they grumble. Over and over, revealing that something more is needed, but it gets worse. God reveals the law to them. He shows them how his people are to live. Well, that'll fix them. Right? Let's get God will come along and he'll say, This is this is what my standard is. Live by this standard. But the law does what? It only serves to reveal how sinful they really are. They're unable to live as God's people because they're a stiff-necked, rebellious people that are in a greater slavery than physical slavery. They're enslaved to sin. There comes this great crisis in chapters 32 to 34 in between the descriptions of how they are to construct the tabernacle, in between the great crisis that threatens their existence, threatens God coming to dwell with them. The only way that God spares them in chapters 32 to 34 is Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And we learn in the middle that something more is needed. There is going to require, if these people are ever going to make it to be God's people without God destroying them, is they are going to need an intercessor. And Moses becomes that. Now turn over to chapter 40 of Exodus. I want you to see something. Exodus chapter 40. And look at verse 34. We're at the height of... They've finally done it. They've built the tabernacle. And they're longing for God to come and His presence and His glory to come. And look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is wonderful. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is absolutely stupendous. We're on our way back to Eden. Look at verse 35. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Finally, the glory of the Lord comes and enters the tabernacle, yet none of the people, including Moses, is able to enter the presence where the glory of the Lord was. And although God's presence was there, there's no experience of the wonderful, glorious ability to be in the presence of God. We're not back to Eden. And you're left with the understanding that there's something more that's needed. And so what do you do? You come to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, and you find out it's going to take a whole lot of blood. A whole lot of sacrifices. And folks, the something more that is ultimately needed is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater spiritual fulfillment that everything it, that the books to, book of Exodus points it to. Our only way, our only way to journey back into the presence of God is Christ. The fact that Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament, its connection to Christ is especially strong. I've become amazed at this as I'm preaching through it. It makes sense that Jude then, this is kind of interesting, but if you go to Jude in verse 5, Jude says, Jesus, listen to this, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. That is how connected Christ is to every event in the Old Testament theologically. It's not only going to be histor- or expositional, historical, theological, but the theological must be ultimately Christological. There's so many connections we could make to Jesus in Exodus. I'm only going to name a few, or we'd just be here all day, and I know you would hate that, so we won't do that. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Let me just make a few connections. And we'll make them as quickly as we can by God's grace. Just considering, so what I'll do is consider the theme alone. The theme of Exodus I've suggested is redeemed to what? To live for what? For his glory. Say that with me. Redeemed to live for his glory. One more time. Redeemed to live for his glory. So if we just take that theme, look at Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to what? Lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And as you move down into chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he immediately says that Jesus is a greater Moses. He brings the greater redemption. 
That we must remember that. And this explains why Jesus was crucified at Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It says that he is our Passover lamb. And then why John the Baptist gave a similar reference as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Many of the words even that the Old Testament uses to describe the exodus from Egypt. Words like ransom and redemption and deliverance are the exact words the New Testament uses to describe Christ's work on the cross. Because Christ brings a greater redemption. We're redeemed, but far greater than Israel even was redeemed in its physical story of Exodus. Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it anticipated the greater salvation accomplished once and for all in Christ Jesus. I'll turn over to Romans 7. Romans 7. So we're redeemed, but Jesus gives a greater redemption. And But we're redeemed to what? To live, to live according to God. Not only does Jesus accomplish a greater redemption for all who believe, He provides for us the ability to live rightly before Him in a way that the law never could. The law delivered to Moses was only given to expose our sinful condition and evidence our need to be set free to be able to walk in obedience to God. The law was given to show us that we're sinners who can never get to the presence of God left to ourselves. If Jesus doesn't provide for us the ability to live in obedience for God, we We will fare no better than the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus has done exactly that though. Look at Romans 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may what? Bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our simple passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. How about an amen to that? Jesus not only provides a better redemption, Jesus through saving us and giving us His Spirit provides us the means by which to really live for God. But if that weren't enough, there's even more. Our story doesn't end with being shut off from the glory of God's presence. This is wonderful because of what Christ has done for us and His gift. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Because of what Christ has done for us and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all who believe experience the presence of God daily in their life. And rather than being shut out from the glory of God, the believer can see it ever increasing in his or her life. I would encourage you also to jot down 2 Corinthians 3, 14-18 and go and and read that and how that we're experiencing something, a greater glory than Moses experienced being up on the mountain in the presence of God. But look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the love of Jesus. Who, what is in the holy places if it's not the presence of God? 
By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. How do we get back to the presence of God? We get back through the pres- to the presence of God through a greater redemption. We get back to the presence of God through a greater way of to be able to live. Not under the law, but under the law of Christ. Not under the Mosaic law that condemns, but under the law of Christ that, that frees us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get there through the person of Jesus Christ so that we can be truly redeemed. Truly to be able to live for His glory. That's the way back. That's what changes everything. It's, it, that's why you must have Exodus be expositional, historical, theological, Christological. But we must not walk away unless we finally make it practical. One more passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because our people will often think that these great theological truths and these stories don't really have much to say to us. But if you look in 1 Corinthians 10... And you look in verses 1 to 6. Look at verse 6. It describes in verse 3 and 4 what happened in the book of Exodus. And look in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. It doesn't say these things are merely interpreted for us. It doesn't say these things uh, uh, that God reads into them for us or he says they actually happen for us that God orchestrated history the history of Israel for you and for me and and what happened in the book of Exodus was written for our instruction so don't think for a moment that Exodus was written solely for people thousands of years ago God orchestrated all that has happened in history for the good of his people he was doing it at the end of Genesis when when uh, uh, Joseph says you meant it for evil God meant it for good he was doing it at the beginning of Exodus when while they're in this foreign land and they're slaves God is multiplying them and he's doing it now for you and me God is moving history to accomplish his purposes for his people We're not dependent on who's in the White House. We're not dependent on who's in Congress or in the Senate. We're not, in no way are we the victims of the historical trail as it just continues to go along. We are victors through the power of Jesus Christ for He's accomplishing His purposes for His people. He always has and He always will. So when you trace the spiritual journey of the Israelites, you're going to discover that what they need you need. And what God provides ultimately is what you need provided for you. We need a liberator to save us from slavery. We need a provider to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver who will not only give us his word, but has empower us to live by it. And we need a God whose presence that we can actually dwell in and live. And all of that is in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just some quick practical applications then. The greatest need that you and I have is to be saved out of the slavery of sin. Our greatest problem we face is the sin of our own heart that separates us from God. And what we need is redemption. Every single one of us needs redemption. And it can only be found in Jesus Christ. Can't get more practical than that. If we already know Christ, and we have come to Him for salvation, if we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then we need to shift from being man-centered in our view of salvation to being God-centered. God has saved you to live for His glory, to make Him known to this world. Your salvation isn't all about you. 
It's all about God and the great deliverer that he is. Thirdly, we ought to value the access we have to the presence of God that's been granted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be in awe of the privilege that we have to be able to worship God and bask in his presence as a people. Hebrews 10 even goes on after it says what we read earlier and applies it by saying we ought to be a people who are spurring one another on to love and good deeds and we ought to be a people who are not forsaking the assembly. Folks, do we realize that when we gather with God's saints and we worship God together that we are in experiencing the best thing we can this side of eternity of the presence of God. Being with God's people who are redeemed to live for his glory. And that means finally you ought to live in a way that you reflect the God who saved you and dwells in you by the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve to be saved from sin any more than the Israelites deserve to be brought out of Egypt. And we often are people who rather than rejoice in the redemption of God, grumble and complain every time something doesn't go our way. But God saves us for his glory. And we should live lives for his glory as the redeemed people that we are. May that be our cry of our hearts as we study the book of Exodus, a book that tells us that as God's people, we have been redeemed to live for His glory. Amen? Father, thank You for Your Word. Every word within the Scriptures is meant to draw us to Your Son. Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful that you are the greater redeemer, the greater enabler that we might live for for God and the only one who can bring us into the presence of God once again. We thank you for what you've achieved for us. May we live today as your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.